We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll be talking U.S. men's national team reaction with a special guest. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Wait for it. Uh, MLS CBA, the saga continues. Messi's messy contract. Mo, Bale, Tuchel, Copa Lib, international roster restrictions, White Tiger, Sans Pasinza, the savior, Neymar versus Ronaldo, and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, Oh, yeah, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday, February 1st in the year 2021? Uh, très bien, très bien. And I am answering in French because all I've been watching on television for the last couple of weeks is French television shows. So I'm really on a Francophile tip right now. I have come to the conclusion, Mossy, uh, that you may be more suited to be married to my wife than I am. Um, she is just finished uh, and was, you know, overflowing with praise for Lupin, Lupin, whatever we're calling it. Okay, although she was a little irritated that it was only six episodes and then stops, she didn't realize that it uh, that it's a continuation. So once again, she's beholden to the man, and that was her only uh, gripe about it. She also. She was with you and actually ahead of you uh, when it came to, uh, what was it called? My Brilliant Friend? Is that yes. what it was? Yes. She watched it and found it a little, was wonderful, but also a little a little jarring, a little melancholy, a little, um, dep- not depressing, but just bleak, I guess, in the way that it was depicted. I haven't seen it. But anyway, you would have plenty to talk about with my uh, with, with my wife. Uh, did you see anything this week, Mossy? Anything interesting? Anything new? Well, so uh, after watching Lupin, I watched another French show, uh, Call My Agent, and absolutely loved it. Uh, there have been four seasons of that, six episodes per season. Uh, I finished it all in a few days. Uh, wonderful show. So please pass that along to your lovely wife. I cannot recommend it enough. Is that bingeable? Can you can you watch it from start to finish? It's done. There's no more episodes, no more uh, seasons, right? Uh, yeah, th- this fourth season was uh, touted as the final one. Now the okay. the creator is hedging a little bit, saying there might be future seasons. But uh, I, I so I don't I'm not sure. But uh, take it for what it's worth. This, this was framed as the final season, and I'm because I'm on this sort of international tip now. My next show might be this money heist, which. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a, a Spanish show about a bank robbery of some sort, and I've been hearing great things about it. So very good chance that's my next show. I'm sure my wife has watched it. Okay, I have two recommendations. Eh, maybe not recommendations, but two things that I watched. One is called uh, White Tiger. 
Um, and it is just a movie. It's not episodes or anything. It's just a movie. Uh, and it is a nutty, nutty movie about uh, this young man over in India who uh, was you know, deep in the caste system that they have over there and comes from nothing and rises to uh, become this entrepreneur and how he actually does it. It's actually a very dark but interesting and at times very funny um uh, type of movie. So I recommend that highly. I actually started watching it and my, and my daughter, 15-year-old daughter, came in and said, oh, we're reading the book. So it comes from uh, a, uh, a, a, a probably a more famous and well-known type of book. Uh, not that I knew it. And then the other one is this epic type of documentary called Sanpa Sins of the Savior. It's it's in Italian and it's based uh, in Italy and it, and it goes, um, it starts in the 80s where there was this drug rehab commune, if you will. Uh, that grew bigger and bigger and bigger and got all political and then went violent and all sorts of stuff. But it's it just goes on forever. There are so many episodes. It is in Italian, but it is dubbed. And the dubbing is not great. It, it irritates me. If you're going to spend all the time to actually do the dubbing in, in English, get some people with some character and some personality and some acting chops to actually act it out and provide the English version with all the tone uh, and the necessary tone and the passion that uh, is being said in Italian. It's much, it's too monotone and, and it, it hurts the flick. But obviously, if you watch it in Italian, then you could just see this, the, uh, uh, the subtitles. But it is, uh, it is dubbed. So those are two things uh, in terms of my recommendation. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right, look, uh, let's stop talking about this. Let's light this candle. Uh, you ready to go? Yep. All right, listen, uh, we've talked about it for a long time about having guests on this show. And it's not that we didn't want to do it. We just wanted to make sure that we did it in the right way. Um, and we've decided to uh, bring somebody on for the first time here on the show. And it is a friend and a colleague of, uh, of all of ours at Fox. You know him. Um, you may love him, you may not love him, but I love him. Uh, the great Stuart Holden is joining us for uh, for the uh, show, for a segment of the show. Uh, Stu, welcome to the State of the Union podcast. Uh, fresh off of broadcasting last night, the uh, United States versus Trinidad-Tobago game. And we want to talk to you about that. But, you know, first off, welcome. All right. How are you doing? Tell our listeners and viewers out there how the last well, a year and a half of craziness has been. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the wonderful introduction. I feel incredibly honored to be the first guest on the State of the Union. Big fan, big listener. Uh, I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had a lot to add here. I'm hearing this introduction. I'm, I watched Did White you? Tiger, Alexi. I, I was, it was riveting. Uh, it was dark. It was deep. It took some turns that I was not expecting. Uh, Mossy, I, I speak French fluently, so I can help you out in your French exploits if uh, if you need, my friend. And uh, my daughter turned five today, so um, you know here I am, you know speeding through a pandemic. My my son is a pandemic baby; he's seven months. My daughter is five, and I find myself thinking, where has the time gone the last five years when I when I retired and now I'm a talking head in the media, Lexi, um, and uh, I'm a father of two. So, wow. you, you know, wow. it well, could you got be your worse, hands man. full and you are coming from under your staircase uh, at your in your it looks wonderful, by the way. You did a great job. Yes. 
Yeah, I, I, in the middle of the pandemic, you, you and I were doing a couple of shows. I just, I, this is my personality. I went over the top. I have soundproofing panels under the stairs. I cleared it out. I have a bookshelf back here. I hung jerseys. I've got the ring light. Like I was set up, bunkered in like this thing was never going to end. And hey, guess what? What, what was our date we had for the start of this? Uh, no, uh, the Friday the 13th of March. Friday the 13th of March is when we was when we started all. Well, look, you know, you get to escape to your little bunker there. And, and given what you've told us and what we know uh, with, with the kids and everything like that, you need a little respite. So we're going to give you a little opportunity. All right. So last night we saw the return of the U.S. men's national team. Uh, Greg Berhalter and company taking on Trinidad and Tobago. Now, look. Uh, for those that, that saw it, you will understand. And for those that didn't, I'm going to give you a real quick uh, synopsis. It was, uh, how do I say this? It was horrible in terms of the level of competition. It was not anything that from the very first whistle to the end of the game was going to challenge this team or the players. Having said that, uh, and I said this on air last night, I don't want a grumpy old man, to, but you got to have some perspective. And so in a strange way, the camp probably was much more beneficial in terms of the assessment of these players than the ultimate 90 minutes. In the same way, the U.S. women's national team uh, a couple weeks ago playing Colombia, which they were just so far ahead of, didn't really, we didn't really learn a whole lot. Or did we still last night in terms of the 7 nothing demolition of Trinidad and Tobago? Yeah, yeah and you know, I, I don't want to sound like an apologist here for, for U.S. soccer because I did see some things flying around of you know, why are we scheduling these types of opponents in El Salvador, which got shellacked by the U.S. and then Trinidad and Tobago. I mean, we, we live in difficult times right now as it is. And then you had Serbia who apparently didn't submit their roster until late and then couldn't get visas. Uh, a couple other teams were in the mix as well. And then basically at the end of the day, two weeks out, Trinidad and Tobago raised our hand and were like, wait, we could probably pull together a team. Now, I did see one interesting thing, which I think would, would we talk about with the U.S. women's team as well at times because they, they struggle to find good opponents mm -hmm. that really test them on a continual basis. I actually would love in one of these moments if we saw an actual inner squad scrimmage of, you know, call it 15 versus 15 and you have 30 guys or even the Olympic team versus the full team would be really interesting to me. And I think we'd learn a lot in that type of setting. So maybe it's something to consider at a point during a January camp. You throw one of those games in the middle of, of a camp and uh, you see those guys really get competitive and get going. Now, having said that, let's talk about the game. You can only beat who's in front of you, you know, an old cliche. These players uh, don't tell the guys making their first cap that, that this game didn't mean anything because it does. Uh, Alexa, you and I have put that shirt on. We've had those moments um, and, and you're, it's one of the proudest moments of your life. So these guys will remember that game forever. And then also it's one of those, if you don't do well, then you're, you're almost judged harsher than if you actually did do well in the game when it's maybe expected. So for these guys, Greg Berhalter, you don't get many opportunities in camp for three weeks on a continual basis to show them. And I think you said this on air last night, Alexi, saying it, it's not just the game, but it's also what you've done over the course of a month. And then can you finish that with the game? So Jonathan Lewis is a guy that really had his stock rise. Greg Berhalter said he came into camp. He was on the outside looking in. But over the course of camp, he performed well. He did the right things. And then in the game, when he got his opportunity, what did he do? Two goals, really active on that left-hand side and showed, okay, I need to be in the mix on the depth chart. So I think we saw 
some real individual performances in the attacking half of guys that took that opportunity. Jesus Ferreira, Paul Ariola back from fitness from an ACL injury. He needed that game as much as, you know, other guys did. And then Jonathan Lewis was another standout. And then all the debuts that went along with it. So a real positive, I would say, uh, given the circumstances. Mossy, Mossy, is there anybody that we saw last night that you could conceive of starting for the national team? And look, to, to Stu's point, at some point, hopefully, all of this talent that we talk about is going to be amassed in, in, in one type of camp, right? And it's going to be incredible because the, com- the competition level is going to raise and the, the amount of talent and the depth of talent that we have is a good thing. But we're watching this game last night. Is anybody there you think going to ultimately be there? If Greg Berhalt had to have a qualifier and a starting 11 right now and, and available, and I know this is a big if, if everybody was available. Well, uh, let's start at the goalkeeper position because, Stu, you caused a bit of an uproar on Twitter a few months ago when it was announced that Zach Steffen was going to Manchester City. Uh, you thought it wasn't a great move for him because he wasn't going to play regularly for his club. And if he didn't play regularly for his club, he should not be starting for the U.S. national team. We know what kind of season Matt Turner had for New England in 2020. Uh, He makes his debut last night. uh, Didn't have much to do, but did save a penalty. Um, Where are you on the U.S. goalkeeper position? You've had a few months to reflect on your comments from uh, the summer. Um, (laughs) Are you still on that page that if Zach Steffen is not starting regularly for Manchester City, he should not be the U.S. starter? Would you go with somebody like a Matt Turner instead? I'm actually really glad you asked me that question, Mossy, because every time Zach Steffen uh, you know, does something great for Manchester City, makes a save or it wins a game, my Twitter mentions they just light up. Now, the beauty of our job is that we get to make takes Uh, we have takes during a certain period and circumstances change. Our takes are not timeless in in that manner and our opinions can change. And I tell you what, I I was one and I had that take. I said, if qualifying started tomorrow and Zach Steffen coming off the end of the year with Fortuna Dusseldorf, having injuries, having not played much, and then going now to Manchester City where once again, I, I knew he had some knee issues you know, I was still more confident in a Brad Guzan who had a great year the year before. Now, fast forward, you have COVID, you have the Premier League jamming games in every three or four days. You have Ederson who uh, goes down with COVID at a point. Zach Steffen gets thrown in. He's playing all the cup games. Pep Guardiola is trusting him. He has done really well in those moments. Brad Guzan has a poor year last year and so do Atlanta United. So, As it stands right now, as we are filming this podcast, Zach Steffen is undoubtedly the number one in my mind. He's back in there, and this move has has worked out better than I thought it would back in whenever I made that take, which was probably April or May of of last year now. And in fact, you know, to your point, Mossy, Matt Turner is in the mix now for the number two. You have Ethan Horvath, who's looking for a move. Um, you, You have all these guys that are recognizing, oh, wait a minute. The number two and number three spots on the goalkeeper depth chart for the U.S. men's national team are wide open, and they have been for some time. Who's going to take that and who's going to be playing at a high level? Matt Turner's stock has gone through the roof, uh, but I, I'm still waiting to say, okay, who's going to be that number two? Zach Steffen, all the, all the Twitter guys, you can you can relax for a minute now. He's he's your number one for the men's national team. So, so all I hear is that Stu Holden is apologizing <laughs> and admitting that he was completely wrong in his hot take. That's all I hear, and that's no, all they No, uh, there's never an apology, Alexi. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, there never is a recognition at the never, time. Never, never, that, never, uh, never no, apologize. We can change, right. we can change it our uh, way. All right, so, okay, but when we are, when we are looking at this right now, Stu, um, you know, the part... Part of the optimism that we have 
is relative to obviously the talent that we have and the depth that we have. And a lot of that talent is playing over in Europe uh, right now. If you were coming up for the national team right now and you wanted to try to force your way into the lineup, wouldn't the most direct path be right now to be playing in Europe? Doesn't even necessarily mean that you're you're better, but just the perception of that player. And I know Greg Berhalter is a smart guy and he he guards against that. As a matter of fact, even when we talked to him, he said, look, any type of pressure to go to Europe is coming internally from the players, not from the coaching staff. They've been very, very clear and they kind of have to be. They have to say, doesn't matter where you play as long as you're good. And we all know it's not necessarily the best players. It's the best collection of players. But the reality is right now that a lot of those players that are playing in big clubs are going to be the starters unless somebody comes along and, and uh, takes it away. But not everybody has a passport. Not everybody, everybody has the opportunity or the ability. Not everybody shows directly and overtly how good they are and therefore gets uh, gets recruited. Not everybody from an age perspective is looked at as, uh, as, as much value as some of these young players. So I, I guess just my, my question to you is, where where are players right now and is there these are, are there these two factions that are being created and is that in essence what Greg Berhalter's biggest job is is to manage those two groups yeah this is a really it's a hot trending topic uh, yeah. at the moment isn't it in the US soccer circles and if you remember the World Cup team I was a part of in 2010 I I don't know the exact number off the top of my head but I believe it was 18 19 players were playing in Europe of the 23 the other couple were you know either goal, backup goalkeepers etc and then you know it all kind of shifted back the other way in major league soccer uh made it uh, they said okay we're going to invest in American talent. We want to bring Clint Dempsey, Michael Bradley, Josie Altador, the big name American players. We want to bring them back and we want to be known as we have the American stars. And almost at that time, Alexi, if you were talking about Europe perhaps being the best place, you had to whisper it in American soccer circles, especially around people from MLS headquarters. It was like, hey, Europe's a good place to go play soccer. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, American talent needs to be here. And in many ways, the interesting part is MLS has embraced it, I think. It, it, and they almost have said, you know what? If guys have success here and they get to a point, they pay their dues in many ways and, they, and they're at the right time and they feel it's right to go, we're not going to hold you back. We still want our fair price and we're still going to try and get that fair price. And, and that's, you know, as you know, market price is all subjective. And at times players have missed out on moves because of that. Aaron Long's a perfect example. The right price didn't come in. MLS said, no, thank you. You signed a new contract last year and you're staying. But I would say if you are a player right now in the player pool and your goal, as it always should be, is to be in the starting lineup for the men's national team. You have to look at, let's say, McKenney, Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic, uh, even a Josh Sargent who's playing week in, week out in the Bundesliga. And you have to say, okay, at a point, yes, optics do matter in a way, but how can I prove to Greg Berhalter if I'm not scoring, let's say, 25, 30 goals in MLS? Because you'd grade it on a scale, right, of the quality of the Bundesliga perhaps to, to MLS – you have to think, I got to go to Europe. I, I need to be in Europe. I need to be at, uh, at a team. I need to be playing minutes. And you know who, re who has recognized that and the moment is right for him? Jordan Morris. Mm -hmm. Jordan Morris was the poster boy for a, 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 an American-produced talent. Seattle Sounders went to Stanford University, decided I'm going to turn down Wolfsburg and I'm going to sign in, in MLS. He's won everything there is to win. He's scored goals and he said, okay, at the age now that I'm at, I need to go and I need to push myself and challenge myself in a different way. 
and he seems to have found what he thinks is the right situation. So it, it's still situational based. I mean, you and I are, uh, as we, we say, we're shills for MLS and we will not say that it's a terrible league because it's not. And some of these players still their right path to getting on the world cup team in Sorry, 22 she, Siri's talking to me here. She Sorry. really liked what I said. Um, <laughs> Siri wants to chime in with us. <laughs> yeah, no, but, it but isn't, be. but hold on, Stu, hold on. Stu, yeah, hold go on, ahead. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Isn't it, if you're doing it for the right reasons, I get it. But if you're just doing it just so you can be perceived as better and therefore play on the World Cup team, you shouldn't have to go anywhere to necessarily be on on the uh, the, the national team. Now, look, I, I know that's that's a little simplistic because of the reality that there is a lot of very, very good talent that is going to get the benefit of the doubt right now. But Jordan Morris, and, I, and look, I, don't, I haven't spoken to Jordan, so I don't know why he is or isn't doing it. And it might just be he wants an adventure. He wants to, to you know, to see what it's like over there. And that's, that's fair enough. But if, he, if this is a calculated move to pad his resume so that at least he can check that box when people look at him, that's... That in and of itself is kind of sad, I would uh, I would think, but it doesn't it doesn't change the reality of of this is the the world that uh, that we're living in right now, right? Yeah, but but I don't think Alexi, it's it is as simple as that though. I, I think for Jordan Morris, let's say he's been at a point in his career where how much further do you feel he could push? Uh, the the change the perception of Jordan Morris as a player in your mind at the Seattle Sounders, having done what already what he's already done. I feel it's at a point for him now to, it might, it's not as simplistic as, okay, he's playing in Europe. He's instantly 10% or 20% better. As you said the other day, when you and I talked of, you know, just cause you land at uh, London Heathrow, it doesn't make you instantly 20% better. But if you land at London Heathrow and you go to Swansea city, you get promoted to the premier league, you score 15 goals in the premier league. All of a sudden you're talking about a guy who is, is a better player because you know, he's, he's playing against better talent week in week out. And he's proved that he can score 15 goals there as opposed to scoring 15 goals, which he's done for the last, however many seasons in major league soccer. So, you know, that, that's what I would say to that. Well, look, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I think it's going to continue to be something that, like I said, Greg Berhalter is going to deal with. It's going to be, continue to be a story that we are going to talk about. And, and as I said on air last night, these are all champagne problems. This is all good stuff to have. All of this talent. And it's not that we didn't have talent in the past. It's just that the depth of talent didn't exist. And if you go and you were to ask from... Bob Gansler to Bora Militinovich to Steve Sampson to Bruce Arena to Bob Bradley to Jurgen Klinsmann, they would have loved to have these types of quote-unquote problems that Greg Berhalter has. But, you know, this is also a feather in the cap of an off-maligned type of system and development uh, system that we have. We love to scream and yell and bash what we haven't done and we're, we're, you know, the system is broken and everyone's falling through the cracks. Well, the reality is that when you implement something, oftentimes you don't see the fruits for a period of time. So this group and this moment that we are in is a result of the work that went on years ago, uh, even at a time when I'm, I'm hard pressed to find a time where we were more critical than, for example, 2017, we didn't qualify for the World Cup right now. So some kudos should go to the American soccer development community out there for what they have what they have been, what they have fostered, and now is coming to fruition uh, right now. But ultimately, it's about winning a World Cup. It's about 
competing against the elite. So all of this talent doesn't mean a damn thing unless it is actually able to do the job when it gets on the field. And that's Greg Berhalter's uh, Masi, uh, ultimate job. What, what have you done with Alexi Lawless that in 2021, he's producing level-headed and measured takes? Are, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Mossy, chime in here. What do you got for us, my friend? What'd you think about last night? A couple questions, Stu. Uh, first off, how do you think Greg Berhalter juggles the present versus the future? And when you say future, people automatically assume you mean the 2026 World Cup, but I just mean 2022, which is roughly two years away. And you look at, for example, the center forward position, and Berhalter might think that if the U.S. had a do-or-die game tomorrow, Josie Altador, if fit, is still the best option. But he also might have a really talented, raw, young striker who, if groomed correctly over the next two years and given opportunities, by the time November 2022 rolls around, he could be a world beater. So I know the U.S. has to qualify first, so he can't look too far ahead and forget about immediate results. But how do you think Berhalter juggles the present versus the near future? Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting point because 2021, and this is why I'm so excited for 2021 in, in the, uh, the soccer world, because it is a jam-packed, loaded calendar. But guess what? We have games that mean something. And this team for the last year, two years, three years, I mean, th there was the Gold Cup in 2019, and you got to see a little bit of Burhalter and, and crank the pressure up a little bit. They lost to Mexico in the final. But, but really, I think this is the year we're going to figure out how, how good this team can be and how good they are right now. Because it's fine and well playing Costa Rica, El Salvador, and then Trinidad and Tobago's BC team and, and rolling them over, which is good. They should do that. They need to roll some of these teams over. This, the United States historically has not done that in the past. It's been the two, three zeros. But I think the five, six, seven set a statement. But really, Mossy, it's Olympics, it's Gold Cup, and then it is all about World Cup qualifying and figuring out can this team, because I, I was one, if World Cup qualifying had started last year, which it was supposed to, um, I, I wasn't quite sure that it should be this young, inexperienced roster. But what this team has had now over the past two years versus before that is it's in, it's incredible. I mean, McKenney playing some of the biggest derbies in the world. Christian Pulisic makes the move to Chelsea. Gio Reyna comes out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, this talent emerges. And now the pressure comes back the other way to Greg Berhalter to figure out can I manage these guys? Can I get the best team uh, on the field? Can, can I get the tactics that worked? Remember Greg Berhalter's like, I'm going to invert the right back and he's going to play center mid. And now it's like, oh, hold on a minute. I got to get the best 11 guys on the field and, and get results. And then look, the number nine position is, uh, is fascinating. It, our inability to have, you know, a standout striker, but yet have a number of players that are in the mix to be that guy. And and I think what I would say to your point about, do you let a guy have two years and you let him develop and you say, this is going to be our striker. That guy hasn't emerged for me yet. It, you know, it's not like you have a guy that says, okay, I really see all the tools. He's a complete package. He could be the number nine striker. Whereas I think in other positions, you potentially have that. So that, that's what I'm fascinated of, of who's, what player profile first does Greg want? And does that dictate then the system? Because clearly right now he wants the Liverpool style uh, formation for this team. And he likes the Bobby Firmino as he equated uh, Jesus Ferreira dropping in deep, playing passes, which Sargent can do. Josie Altidore can do that. Andy can score and finish on, get on the end of crosses. But as we all know, Josie Altidore, you cannot just count on him over the court. You couldn't, I think, take Josie Altidore to a tournament right now and say, 
he's going to give me five, six games without having to manage his minutes, and he's going to be consistent. He's going to get us eight, nine goals. I'd rather have Jossie's artist in that case. And, you know, you look at the depth chart of, of who could be in there. I don't know. Lex, do you, do you have a guy right now you said that's my striker for this men's national team? No, that's the whole point. There's nobody. Yeah. It's wide open. I mean, there's not a lot of places left back. And up top, you know, we mentioned the goalkeeper, but, you know, unless something ridiculous happens, it's going to be Zach Steffen. So up top, it's wide open and nobody. And the interesting thing, Jesus Pereira played it in a very, very different way than Josie Altidore plays it. Much more of, of a false nine. And that fundamentally changes how you play. So if, if and, and I, I can respect being flexible, but ultimately in your core, your formation and the way that formation plays. And there are kind of templates to how you want. So. In no way, shape, or form did, did Ferreira replicate what, replicate what Josie did, but obviously it was successful. So are you going to go that way, or are you going to say, no, that's not quite what we uh, what we wanted to do? Last question on this before we move on to uh, the MLS-CBA talk, uh, Stu. And you mentioned it briefly there. With all of this wonderful stuff happening to these players, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? I mean, and not just Paris, a lot of different places. These are players that are now playing at some of the big clubs and some of the big leagues. And, you know, they're feeling their oats. They're feeling good. And Greg Berhalter has to be able to manage now some very, very famous, incredibly well-paid, privileged, um, and big egos, let's say, at times. Uh, and, And some of it's inevitable when you get to these types of things. So do you think he has it within himself to be able to do that, because I think that's going to be, at the end of the day, it's going to be more important, his ability to manage all of these egos and personalities because of who they are when they come strutting in now to the national team camp, much more so than the X's and O's of it. Yeah, I, this is, this is a, a trend that I'm fascinated to follow over the next, call it two years, leading up to, to 2022 World Cup, because... You know, we 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 joked in Jess in in a way about when Greg first started uh, as a coach, and you know it was mostly guys that were just trying to find their way and and make a point and prove. And lots of guys got new caps, lots of guys got opportunities, but it was almost like uh, you know twenty three coaches' sons that are just going to run around like crazy and are trying to impress, do all the right things. Um, they're going to listen to the rules, and Greg was the boss, right? He is the boss, but. And, and I think what Greg has going for him is that he's seen a lot of these guys before they've made their moves and they've made the jumps to mm, Barcelona's yeah. and Juventus. So you've established a relationship with them. It's not like you're bringing a guy in for the first time and you're telling him he's got to you know be at this meal at this time and this these are the rules. And he's almost created a culture of accountability within the team. But you still know that that's not necessarily driven by the, the mid-level guys, it's driven from the top down because those guys command that, that respect. And when they walk into a room, you know, Alexi, like you, you mentioned, when you're playing at Barcelona and, and Juventus, you puff your chest up a little bit higher and your pockets are a little fuller because, you know, you've got the big contract, you've got the fancy gear on. I, I might sound like I'm speaking from experience here, um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, that didn't happen at Bolton. Um but, you know, it's a real thing. And then those guys look to the other players. So really, Greg, the most important thing he has to do and the most important thing any coach has to do, and you need buy-in from your stars. You need Christian Pulisic, McKenney, You need Gio Reyna. You need 
all of those guys bought into what you're doing, what you're trying to do, and you help them drive that culture forward. But it's going to be interesting, though. The first time one of those guys says, mm, you know what? I don't want to come in for the March friendly. Uh, we've got a big game on the weekend. I'm getting pulled this way by Thomas Tuchel or Pirlo saying, no, don't go and play against Northern Ireland, whoever it might be. I need you for the big derby. What does that then do for the rest of the team? And how do you kind of manage that? That's where Greg Berhalter is going to have to get away from just X's and O's. And it's not just exit and O's ever, but the the man management part is going to become even more important for him as this as this cycle progresses here. Yeah, we all know dynamics are so important in a in a locker room and power, and ultimately that these players are amassing power individually and collectively, and how they wield that power and in what form and what way and when. Uh, it, it can make for some dramatic type that, of situations. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll say on that, Alexi, I think this is a good thing. I, I think this is a really good thing for this player pool because it, it, it makes the pool hungrier. It adds a little bit of an edge, an mm -hmm. edge that perhaps we haven't had in the past. Bordering on cockiness, but but still being humbled by what had happened in 2018 and guys that had, had been a part of that and didn't qualify for that World Cup. So still hungry to keep pushing this thing forward with still a, hey, puff our chest up, Mexico, what's up? We, we are the best team in CONCACAF. That's what it should be. All right, listen, listen, let's leave that. Uh, and like you said, a, a, a full slate, hopefully cross fingers, knocking on wood of games for the U.S. men's national team and U.S. women's national team, uh, for that matter, in 2021. And we hope uh, that they are all played and everybody stays uh, safe and healthy so we can see this team grow and see these players grow, uh, whether they're domestic or abroad. Uh, speaking of domestic, all right, Stu, you do a great job uh, covering MLS and have for a number of years. We are in the midst of a CBA negotiation and the potential of a work stoppage and a lockout from Major League Soccer. They uh, they extended the uh, the deadline, quote unquote deadline, uh, for another week here. So we'll see if they adhere to that to get this thing done, to amend the current CBA, uh, to accept the offer of two years additional and some salary cap uh, type of uh, freezes when it comes to this. Are we going to have an MLS season, Stu, number one? Two, when is that season going to happen? What, it, what is it going to look like? And I know you've been involved in negotiations in the past and you've kind of seen these things. So wh where are we at right now? Is it different than in the past in that the league has much of the power and the leverage right now? Uh, or has that type of situation shifted? Because ultimately, these are individuals a lot of them, while we talk about the millionaires out there, the reality is that most of them are living paycheck to paycheck and uh, thinking long term and helping out future players while noble uh, doesn't put food on the table. You're right. That's the the dynamic that comes to every CBA negotiation. And the fundamental part of a CBA is it's never fun. It's never friendly. Uh, neither side ever feels like they really win. And uh, there's always, it always comes down to the last minute. It's never done until the end and the, both sides are threatening and the lockout is always threatened from ownership. However, I would say in this case, it feels to me that MLS ownership and the league have more leverage than they have had in the past. And the players conceded in a way last year, but also the players were incredibly noble and uh, they, they, they put their lives at risk. Uh, they, they put um, all of that, their, their safety, their health uh, online to go down to MLS's back and 
put together a, a, an incredible season last year, one that will live on forever in uh, in history of, of the game in this country. And, you know, Major League Soccer deserves a lot of credit there as well. Now, fast forward, this all seems to be about the length and uh, of the actual CBA and the world cup in 2026 seems to be a big part because I think we all feel collectively, and it, this is not a hot take in any way. The game in this country is, uh, is on a big upward trajectory heading towards 2026. And that should be the biggest world cup uh, of all time in, in history, most attended, most sponsorship, most revenue, etc. What does everybody want? Piece of the pie. And, uh, I think if, as when it comes to the players, they don't want it to go after that because they want to be in a position of strength negotiating with that World Cup on the horizon and media deals and all the stuff that's going to come with that. And they say, OK, we won a piece of the pie because we'll have done our work heading into that World Cup and we've paid our dues. We're waiting for a payday, etc. So. What I would say to the lockout and will we see a season this year? I think we'll see a season uh, because I think both sides recognize it would just be stupid at this point to, to, to lose any type of momentum um, for the game in this country and to not have yourself in the sporting landscape where soccer and especially American soccer fights so hard to have its place. But I would say from an ownership perspective, I'm not in a rush to do the deal because there's no guarantee fans are in the stands come April for sure with that yep. with vaccines. And that's when the league's supposed to start ownership saying I'm going to lose money anyways. Um, I don't think that they care too much about good faith because according to MLSPA, uh, the, the, the relationship is fractured according to Ethan Finley. So you're not going to repair that by, you know, meeting them halfway and doing the one year extension that the MLS players association wants. So I would say, MLS ownership are probably stronger feeling than they have been before about saying, okay, let's lock out for a couple months, however detrimental that might be. And whether the MLS players association even agreed to that, but then maybe you're looking at a summer season and a truncated year or a summer season that ends in the spring of 22. But, um, it's not fun. It's not fun on, on both sides right now. And I hope they get a deal done and I hope uh, better heads prevail. But really, I, I know the Players Association are saying, okay, ownership on, on MLS, they're losing money and these guys are investing a lot of money. But, you know, haven't the, the top 1% in, uh, in, in all of America done better than anybody during this pandemic when it comes to the stock market and et cetera? The billionaires have gotten even richer. And I think MLS Players Association are saying, Hold on a minute. You guys aren't necessarily struggling here. Okay, hold on. But that that's that's charity then. Uh, no, I know. Look, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I believe in business. And, and this, and look, there is a notion out there that what is happening right now is disingenuous from the league and from ownership right now. And that, uh, like you said, they, they have plenty of money. Look, it's easy to spend other, other players or other people's money when it, comes, uh, when it comes right down to it. If, and if that's what you want to do, fine. But some of the reasons why uh, these folks have been successful is because they are smart in terms of business and they are prudent. And sure, you could, you could oftentimes make the case, well, you have plenty of money. And so therefore, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter to you. Well, the reason why it matters to you is that that is good business practice. Now, I'm not saying that good business practice is squeezing people uh, necessarily at times it can be or or putting people out or that there, there shouldn't be altruistic aspects of what you are doing right now but this this argument that since the owners are in many cases billionaires they shouldn't be coming and crying uh, crying poverty 
I think that I think that's a little uh, simplistic. Now, I'm not saying that they're not being opportunistic and that you don't have to recognize the moment and you don't have to position yourself in the right way because, you know, they have their side and they have to do what's good for uh, for them and what they believe is going to be beneficial for them from a uh, business perspective, but you know, these are people that voluntarily got into the sport of professional soccer. One that for most of history has, as well, all of history when it comes to soccer in the United States has always been fraught uh, with challenges and with obstacles and, and with risk. And they have built this into the most successful league in uh, American soccer history. And they wanted to succeed. I mean, you don't think that Austin wants to be successful. They're opening up a new stadium and doing all, all of these things. So I know it's easy to vilify and portray them as villains. And look, some of them at times, they certainly can be. And it doesn't mean that you don't fight for what you, uh, what you believe in. But ultimately, I think everybody is in this for the right reasons and wants this ultimately to succeed. And if the entire negotiation is just going to be the, the players saying, yeah, but you guys are rich anyway then it's not going to get you very far and it's not going to solve the situation. I do think ultimately it does uh, it does get solved and I do think that you know the players will once again uh, acquiesce I guess isn't a great word but I do think that they are going to give uh in order to go forward and it, you know it just might be a situation where it's still not they don't have enough power. They don't have enough leverage in order to get the things that they uh, that they ultimate, uh, ultimately want. Doesn't mean you don't fight for it uh, going forward. And that it that Ethan Finley or anybody else feels that it's fractured. Look, it, that's part and parcel of these negotiations. It's they're always contentious. They're always and by the way, it's been really interesting to see the public way that both sides have used social media and putting out releases and the words in those releases. It's not it's not been private. It's not been nobody's talking about it. They're both talking about it, and they're trying to win hearts and minds out there as much as they possibly can. But inevitably, the ownership is always going to be looked at as uh, villains relative to the relative to the players, and I I, I get that. That's just kind of uh, natural. Um, uh, anything else CBA wise you want to hit, uh, Stu? Because I know uh, Mossy has a question for you that's not related to the CBA, but he wants to end it on that. You good? All right. Listen, Mossy. Hit him with what you wanted, because I know you've been sitting oh there stewing. Mossy has that gleam in his eye. Like, he's just about to light me up here. No, Stu, it's just in March, the U.S. is going to be trying to qualify for the Olympics. The U.S. has missed out on the last two Olympics. The last one they took part in was in 2008. You were on that 2008 team, Beijing Olympics. And somebody else that was on that team is Freddie Adu. Uh, and Grant Wall recently did this podcast examining the rise and fall of uh, Freddie Adu. Uh, Alexi and I both were fascinated by it. We discussed it here on our pod. And I'm just curious to get your perspective on Freddie Adu. Uh, do you feel like he was overhyped, never that great to begin with? Or he was a special talent who, had he been allowed to develop properly, would have turned into a big star. But MLS and the media put too much pressure on him and knocked him off course. Where do you come down on the whole Freddie Adu story? Yeah, I guess my opinion here uh, is in a way because I, I haven't listened to uh, Grant's podcast yet. So I, I don't know what the, the ultimate um, conclusion that, that Grant came to after, you know, the, the, the storytelling of, of the rise and fall of, of Freddie Adu. I, I remember my first ever camp with Freddie was a, a U-20 camp and we played down in Fort Lauderdale, the old Lockhart before it was now uh, in our Miamis. And we played against Brazil 
I remember being starstruck by, by Freddie uh, because I was a young kid in college and Freddie Adu was Freddie Adu. He had the, the you know, the name, the persona. Uh, we walk into the stadium. Everybody wanted a picture with Freddie. I have a, a picture on an old camera that my mom took because I was like, I want a picture with Freddie. And, um, you know, I have the, this old picture. I think she sent me and I'm cracking up. Like, why was I fanboying here with like my teammate? Um, <laughs> but, you know, Freddie is... Um, He's such an, an, an a fascinating story and character and personality. And Fr Freddie was so much younger, but so talented at, at that time. Um, I, I remember the, the skill set he had, the ability to control a ball. Um, I know he had the, the pressure and everything of being a, a pro already, but what I would say for Freddie as a, as a player himself, I, I felt that Freddie was so far ahead at a point and then almost plateaued and other guys caught up and physically he didn't develop in, in a way that when the game got faster and the level got higher, he, he couldn't do the things that separated him uh, before. And that, that to me was, you know, beyond pressure and, you know, whatever you want to say, I, I don't, I'm not buying that because I, I know Freddie is a person and, he, he might have, he was immature for obviously what he had to take on and, you know, the people that he was around, because guess what? He was still a kid and he didn't mature in a way that, that I've seen other guys like, you know, you've been around Tyler Adams a little bit, you know, even when Tyler was 16, I felt like I was talking to an, a, an adult, you know, a, a 30 something year old guy that had a level headed shoulder and was driven and, and, you know, what that comes down to, I don't know, but, but Freddie's personality was not like that. He was always just a kid at heart and he just wanted the ball at his feet and he wanted to play and he could do such talented things. But I never, I, you know, once the, 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 the level went up and I saw Freddie then at Benfica and trying to find his way in Europe. And I think then there was for Freddie an, an expectation in his head that he was this, and he was always supposed to be this. And then when he was in these environments, and it wasn't happening. It was, okay, well, it, it was somebody else's fault. And I needed to then a change of scenery. And I think that's why then Freddie was six months here, three months here, four months here. And it was like, I need to find the place where I can thrive because I'm capable of this and I am this talent. And, you know, whether that was created, that wasn't certainly created internally. That was probably created from listening to everything that was going on around, around him. But you know, at the end of the day, Freddie is a terrific guy. He's, he's, he's a really kind person at heart, but I, I just don't think that his talent from what it was at 16 or 14 playing with 17, 18 year olds was ever the same as 19, 20, 21 year old Freddie playing with 24, 25, 26 guys at the top, top levels. He just, he just wasn't that good uh, at that point. And I'm not saying he wasn't good in general because he was so talented, but he was never the Freddie that I think everybody had hoped and expected he would be. Well, Stu, uh, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for coming on the pod uh, and gracing us with your presence and your knowledge. Uh, you are a pleasure to uh, work with uh, and a, uh, uh, I'm glad to call you uh, my colleague and my friend. Uh, go on and do great things. Uh, tell the people where they can find you out there because I know that's important. Uh, Stu, by the way, got me on uh, what that what's it uh, Clubhouse. Clubhouse the other Clubhouse. day. Which yeah, I think we should hop on. A, on. Let's get on on Friday again. It's a chat line. It's basically a, a party line out there, but for 2021. So uh, tell the people where they can find you, Stu. Which, Elon Musk jumped on there and absolutely shut Clubhouse down because everybody was making rooms that were streaming his room, and I oh guess they God. max out your rooms. We didn't get that many. Uh, uh, as, as many people as that, Alexi. But no. uh, yeah, at Stu Holden across Twitter, social, 
thanks for having me on guys um and uh yeah let, let me know uh when we can do this again sometime. Wonderful. Thanks, Stu. Um, we're going to take a little break here. When we come back, we will uh, take a spin around the rest of the world. Don't go anywhere. Hello, State of the Union listeners. It is Alexi Lawless here to tell you about our brand new Fox Sports app and website, foxsports.com, reimagined for the modern sports fan. Go ahead and download the new app now. You don't even have to pause this episode. Every day on the new app and website, you'll see the top stories in sports, plus a rich world of written content, videos, social media, and analytics to give you a 360-degree view of the most important stories of the day. You can favorite your favorite teams and players so you'll never miss an important update. Streaming live TV has never been so easy or elegant. Every Fox Sports game, including all pregame and postgame shows, are just one click away. For the extra invested fan, we also go deep with real-time wagering lines, trending prop bets, win probability, and key player projections. So download the new Fox Sports app or visit www.foxsports.com. All right, we're back. Uh, that was fun uh, with Stuart Holden, and uh, thanks again for him uh, and uh, joining us on the uh, on the pod. We're going to try to do some more of that as we go forward with some different people out there. Just wanted to test it out there, and Stu was a good test subject. Uh, mossy, messy. <laughs> All right, so get, explain to the folks that maybe didn't see uh, some of these numbers uh, and, and some of this this talk about Messi. We all knew that Messi was highly paid. He's one of the great athletes in the world, one of the most famous athletes in the world, and therefore you knew that that was going to be uh, part of the uh, the package here. But uh, the numbers were leaked, all right? Well, that's a whole other story probably, but the numbers were, uh, were leaked, and they are mind-boggling right now. Yeah, this is the latest twist in the Messi saga there's always been an air of mystery about Messi's contract. As you said, we know he makes a lot of money, but uh, when you factor in all the bonuses, uh, just how much, we weren't quite sure. And this uh, Barcelona newspaper, El Mundo Deportivo, got their hands on Messi's contract, a four-year deal that he signed with Barcelona in 2017 that runs out this summer. And like I said, when you factor in all the different bonuses, uh, Messi earns 138 million euros per year. And all told, over the course of this four-year deal, he stands to earn 555 million euros. And this news was revealed during a time when Barcelona is dealing with a crippling debt, um, in large part caused by the exorbitant wages they're paying their players. And so uh, the whole tone of this article was that, hey, if you're wondering why Barcelona is in so much debt, it's because they're paying one player this much money. Uh, it was kind of a smear. It was meant to turn public opinion against Messi, but it seems to have backfired because it was so nakedly done for that reason that uh, I, I've, I've actually noticed like a lot of sympathy Messi's way. Uh, and, and the question is, how did El Mundo Deportivo get their hands on this contract? There are four parties that had a copy of Messi's contract. Messi himself, the law firm he hired to help negotiate the deal, Barcelona and the La Liga offices. And Barcelona are trying to distance themselves from this. They put out a statement saying they were appalled and it definitely wasn't them and that they're going to sue the newspaper. But uh, 
there is a suspicion from Messi's camp that it did come from Barcelona, that there is a faction within that club that would prefer to see Messi leave. And that this was an attempt to create a sort of permission structure with the fans to show that, hey, keeping this guy means having to pay uh, him this sort of contract when we don't have any money. And, and Barcelona right now are struggling to pay their bills. They owe all this money to other clubs from, from transfer deals. And so, uh, so that's where we are right now. This is the latest twist in the Messi saga. Well, well, first things first, in no way does this change my perception of Messi. It doesn't hurt it in the least. He is worth every penny. I think they calculated it out to 4 million euro a goal or whatever it ends up, ends up being. It, it's, it, 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 it's ridiculous money, but it's really not ridiculous relative to arguably the greatest player ever to play the game and what he has done and what he has meant to uh, the game, but, but what, what he's meant specifically to Barcelona and La Liga. So I, I think he's worth every single, every single euro that he is being paid. And if this was designed to to cast him in a poor light, I like like you said, I think it completely backfired. Now it does also set up if he does leave. I mean, you, you can certainly, if you're Barcelona, say, well, this is part of the reason why we're in debt. Fine, that's that's no problem if if you want to do that. But if he does leave. Now the expectations uh, have been set, and it's not as if people didn't realize that you were going to have to pay him ridiculous amounts, but it also makes it, there's a very small, maybe on one hand now that you can look at if that's the type of contract that he's looking for going forward. Yeah, a few miscellaneous thoughts I have, and that's one of them. First off, clubs like Real Madrid and Bayern Munich are coming out today. They're wondering how the heck Barcelona could be in compliance with financial fair play if they're paying one player this kind of money. The other thing is everybody's wondering now where Cristiano Ronaldo's head is at now that he's seen how much money Messi <laughs> is making. So uh, Juventus might get a phone call from Ronaldo's agent uh, this week. But thirdly, that, that's the key point here. I, listen, I'm guilty of this. Whenever we throw around the term free transfer, people act like you're getting the player for free without factoring in the wages you have to pay him. And so Messi's contract runs out this summer. And there's this notion that, boy, what an amazing opportunity. You can get Messi on a free transfer. Well, there's nothing free about it. Uh, I know it's Messi. And I know we think clubs like Manchester City and PSG are made of money. But still, he's going to be 34. And if you're going to have to pay him this type of contract at a time when everybody's hurting because of the pandemic, it's at least something you think twice about. And so th this really, this contract revelation really sort of put into context what a financial commitment it is if you want to have Messi on your team. Yeah. When, when we talk about free transfers, here's how, here's how the agents look at that. Uh, you have $1 million to spend. Okay. If there's a transfer fee, it has to come out of that $1 million, right? If not, you're still paying $1 million. It's just going to the player and the agent, by the way. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in pointing, uh, in, in pointing that out. It just, it just means there's less of a hoop to jump through. But you still got to pay the money. And don't think for a second that players and agents don't start licking their chops. It's one of the reasons why they do play out those contracts so they can ultimately make more of the money. But the, but the amount of money being spent is usually just the same. It's just a matter of how it's divvied out. Now, uh, this controversy didn't affect Messi on the field this week, and he had a very good performance, scored a wonderful free kick goal as Barcelona defeated Athletic Bilbao. But one of Messi's great sources of discontent is the way that Barcelona just gave away Luis Suarez to Atletico Madrid. And that move looks dumber by the day. Luis Suarez, two more goals this past weekend as Atletico beat Cadiz 4-2. And that result, coupled with Real Madrid's home defeat to Levante, means Atletico are now 10 points clear of both Real Madrid and Barcelona with a game in hand. So if they win that 
that game in hand. They'd be 13 points up past the halfway point of the season. They were threatening to turn this into a procession. I know it's hard to wrap your head around the idea of somebody other than Real Madrid or Barcelona running away with that league, but that's kind of what's happening this season. I'm just going to ask you every single week, are you ready to call it? Are you ready to call it? Because you weren't quite ready to do it over the last couple of weeks. So now are you ready to call it? Is it done? Is La Liga over? Uh, not quite. I'm going to give oh, it a couple more weeks. <laughs> come on. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other team that uh, people think is ready to take command of a, a title race is Manchester City. It's been this topsy-turvy Premier League campaign. Lots of different clubs have spent time at the top of the table. Man City are up there right now. And, and there's a sense, I've talked about it in this podcast the last couple of weeks, that they're going to be the ones to take control here. I will say this Kevin De Bruyne injury was something of a, of a wild card here. I wasn't counting on. He's going to miss several weeks. He's going to miss some important games. So I know they won this weekend against Sheffield United, but we'll have to wait and see how they cope uh, in the bigger games without De Bruyne, including a game they have coming up uh, this Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, City head to Enfield to face a Liverpool side that suddenly have their mojo back, uh, a couple of very good wins away to Tottenham and away to West Ham. Um, and so that's going to be an exciting game. They both play midweek first, but uh, Liverpool hosting Manchester City next week, and I'm really looking forward to. Mo Salah, by the way, can't stop scoring, but uh, I'm not trying to be amateur psychiatrist here. There's something going on with his body language and the way he's celebrating these goals. It's almost like every goal he scores now, he acts like he scored it against a former team. You know, that sort of Mm-hmm. Look that guys give when they score against a former club, but they're not allowed to admit that they're happy they just scored. And so I don't know if that means Mo Salah is just unhappy in general, but have you noticed that the way he's reacting after scoring these goals? It's slightly bizarre. You know, the uh, the old clip of, of Bobby Knight answering that question about uh, body language and, game and face. all that. <laughs> was yeah, Game face or whatever. So, yeah, okay, so I don't know. Do you want him to do a dance? Do you want him to walk? Do you want him to run? Do you want him to jump? I... I'm not saying that what you see isn't isn't true, um, but I, I just don't know exactly. I think, it, but I think if if that is true, I think it's relative to this unique year that they are going through. Um, the team obviously hasn't done as well, uh, although they're you know they've they've turned a type of a corner here. They've had long term injuries when it comes uh, when it comes to Liverpool. In a strange way, the pressure is off of them. They did what they needed to do, and now they can kind of creep up from uh from behind if you will and they look they're still they're still in it man city um talk about kind of doing st- stuff in the shadows now they find themselves there like you mentioned uh injuries could uh, could change that right now but i i still haven't met anybody that is buying manchester united despite the fact that they are let's see here three points off of uh, of man city they just haven't endeared themselves to uh to to closing this out yet are you on that uh are you on that line too yeah i like united i think they definitely finish in the top four but uh when the dust settles i still think it's going to be city and liverpool battling for the title united will finish third uh united this past weekend uh nil nil draw away to arsenal but don't be fooled by the scoreline this was a thoroughly entertaining game both teams had a million chances to score it was amazing that uh nobody did so uh, that was the result there. And, and you know, I do want to hit on one more thing in England. Uh, Tottenham 
uh, who are without Harry Kane, who's injured right now. So Gareth Bale got a rare chance from the start in the Premier League and was awful, have got hold off early in the second half. Tottenham lost to Brighton. Uh, They're outside the top four. Jose Mourinho looking cranky again. But the Gareth Bale thing is, is fascinating to me. Look, we, we've talked about it on this podcast. When you look at the totality of his Real Madrid career and the moments he, he had there, it was unfair the way they treated him. They acted like he was some flop, and that's ridiculous. But his form did suffer in his last two or three years there. That goal he scored against Liverpool in the Champions League final was completely outside the context of how he had been playing in the last part of his Real Madrid career. And a lot of the British media who frankly don't follow Spanish football just chose to buy into this notion that the only reason they weren't playing him was because he doesn't speak Spanish or he plays too much golf. And it was just something totally frivolous and impetuous like that on the part of Real Madrid. And, and, not giving Zinedine Zidane the benefit of doubt that, I mean, this, this guy's watching Gareth Bale train every day. And last season, Real Madrid was battling Barcelona tooth and nail for the La Liga title. And if Zinedine Zidane felt like Gareth Bale could help him, do you think there's any world where he wasn't going to play him just because the guy doesn't speak Spanish that well or talks too much about golf? And so... I don't know, this notion that going to Tottenham, he was just going to have this rebirth and he was going to make Real Madrid look ridiculous. Uh, Listen, it may still happen, but so far, no. So far, it's looking like, hey, maybe Real Madrid had a point the last couple of years and this guy is just not that good anymore. Yeah, but when you say that, he's just not that good anymore. So what happened? Look, we all, our our talents and skills diminish as we get older and, and, you know, age (laughs) affects us, but... It's almost as if, just from a mental perspective, he's checked out. Um, I mean, look, he's had injuries, but not career-ending type of of things that would make him a completely different player. And he, you talk about a shell of your former self. There's there is nothing there, which makes me think that he has checked out. Look, he he has made plenty of money. That's not even going to be a question. He has done it at the biggest uh, and the highest level. Uh, you mentioned the golf, which you know sometimes is used against him, but he just may be thinking of a life of of golf and something different right now. But I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. But you are absolutely right; he is anything but even close to what he uh, what he was. And I'm not sure that that's going to change anytime uh, soon. Uh, anything else Premier League wise, uh, Mossy, that you want to hit? I think we're done in Europe. Okay. Um, should we? Uh... Discuss these Let's do it. Let's do it, Mossy. Payoff. The, the people need the payoff from the Copa Libertadores final. Wah, wah, wah. So, uh, Palmeiras are your Copa Libertadores champions. They defeated Santos 1-0. Uh, the uh, winning goal scored by substitute Breno uh, at the 90 plus 10 mark. And, and let me start there, by the way, because uh, with... How long these VAR reviews take in South America, plus the other shenanigans that you can expect in South American football, the time wasting, the the, the bench clearing brawls and such. Uh, South American football is redefining our concept of how long a match takes. It used to be like a pretty random occurrence to have a game where you had 10 minutes of stoppage time or 15 minutes of stoppage time. If you ever turn on a game and you see that there's like 15 minutes of stoppage time, you assume the lights went out in the stadium or something crazy like that happened. But in South America and the Copa Libertadores this season, that became the norm. Like I felt like every other game was like that, which is just crazy. And, <laughs> and, and this one too, I mean, this was like insane. It ended at a hundred and, 90 plus 14 or something. The referee finally blew the final whistle. Um, Are you angry about that? or uh, In this case, I am because uh, this game couldn't have ended soon enough. This was just an awful, ugly, choppy, foul-ridden game. And listen, 
just to give a little context here, in, in the mid-2000s, there were back-to-back years in which the Libertadores had all Brazilian finals, and both were awful. And CONMEBOL immediately afterwards instituted a rule that if two teams from the same country reached the semis, they had to face each other. And it was done under the guise of we don't want same country finals, but everybody knew it was to reduce the chances of another all-Brazilian final. So that rule was in place for about 10 years. And then when they reformatted the competition, they did away with that rule. And they were blessed with a Boca River final in 2018, which, crowd trouble aside, was great. Uh, If you remember the the actual games, uh, and listen, it's a very heated rivalry. Both teams were under intense pressure, but they somehow channeled it in a way where they produced two well-played, thoroughly entertaining games. And so the fact that we got that final probably validates Conrad Ball's decision to do away with that rule. But the downside is it increased the chances of an all-Brazilian final and a game like we got this weekend. And I'm sorry. I know there were some mitigating circumstances this time. The punishing calendar, both teams retired, the the scorching heat in Rio de Janeiro. But Brazilian clubs haven't earned that benefit of doubt because I've seen this very game too many times over the last 20 years, even when the conditions were right. Uh, This is just... Uh, I'm sorry, this is just what Brazilian football is and and what I've been railing about on this podcast. Uh, There have been some baby steps in the right direction this past year with the arrival of some foreign managers with some fresh ideas, but old habits die hard. And unfortunately, you put two Brazilian clubs in a big final like this, and chances are they're going to end up kicking each other for 90 minutes, uh, and it's going to be just a horrible advert for South American football. It's, It's this eternal issue that Comnebol has. The country that produces the best players and has the most money is unfortunately a country that has this like deeply pragmatic streak. And I know people who listen to it, wait a minute, Brazil, isn't it? Jogo Mm -hmm. Bonito, what are you talking about? But that's one of the great myths. If you've followed the Brazilian domestic football the last 15, 20 years, the notion that it's there's any Jogo Bonito going on there is nonsense. It's like the most pragmatic league in the world. And so, yeah, that that was a tough So you think it was really a manifestation of a long-held tradition and history and culture of the way that Brazilian teams play? Uh, I'm not talking about the national team, but yeah, unfortunately, yes. Uh, this was uh, wow. yeah, this was exposing all the ills that I, people like me have been complaining about for the last 15, 20 years. Like I said, it they, there's some uh, young managers coming up. There's more and more foreign managers coming in. So maybe things will change. Maybe a couple of years from now, if there's an all-Brazilian final, it'll be a better game and both teams playing more expansively. But uh, in, in 2020 slash 2021, this is still where we are. <laughs> well, I don't want to finish this segment on a down, or down note. So I, 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 want, I know you have something uh, happy and joyous and celebratory to finish it up here, especially when it comes to Brazil, which we have kind of <laughs> uh, yeah, downplayed here. There was a heartwarming story in Brazilian football. Um, I think all of us remember that horrible tragedy in late 2016. A Brazilian club named Chapecoense probably reached the Copa Sudamericana final, which is the South American equivalent of the Europa League. And when they were flying to Colombia to face Atletico Nacional in that final, the plane crashed. There were 77 people on board. 71 died. Only six survived. Uh, Fox Sports did a wonderful uh, documentary about that tragedy that I know you 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 watched yep. and um, were very, very moved by. Well, I mentioned there were six survivors. One of them was a player on the team named Alain Huchel, who uh, suffered some significant injuries, but was able to rehab and get back on the field. And lo and behold, Chapecoense have just won the second division title in Brazil, and he was the captain and got to lift the trophy. And so uh, given everything that he's gone through and that that club has gone through the last few years, that was a wonderful moment to see him lifting a trophy. And uh, so Amazing. we'll end on Amazing. a heartwarming. I mean, that, and that's, you know, our, the, the documentary that you're talking about obviously ends at a certain point, but the story and the people and the characters and and obviously the, uh, you know, the... 
the continuation of, of what's going on there. It could be a whole other documentary. So uh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Okay. Um, anything else, Moss? You ready to move along? Yep. All right, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back. Uh, and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the dis- different social media platforms. And we find a few each week. And Mossy reads them out. Mossy, what do the people want to know this week? Uh, first up, Luis Aguilar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who is is a producer on this podcast? You know he's he's submitted questions before, but he did it uh, via some of his burner accounts on Twitter. It's a little bit like Johnny Carson secretly submitting monologue jokes to Letterman. But right. I think Luis Aguilar has reached the um, pulling out of the driveway without looking kind of phase of his career. Doesn't care anymore, so he's now just asking questions. <laughs> his actual name. So Luis Aguilar asks asks thoughts on the latest transfer window. Oh my goodness. Uh, so we are recording this, as I said, on Monday, February 1st. We are in the midst of the the window closing for, for many places out there, and it continues on. By the way, I have no problem uh, with Luis sending us in a question because, you know, we, we don't feature him a whole lot on this uh, on this pod. And so it's good to give him a little... Uh, a little play and a little uh, attention and a little bit love. And it's a good it's a good question. Look, I, I'm not going to go and break down every single move out there. Mossy, I know there's probably some that you want to definitely hit on, but I think there is the trend that is worth mentioning. And even as we were as we speak, uh, uh, there there is stuff going on, uh, even when it relates to the U.S. Uh, the U.S. national team and U.S. players and MLS players. Uh, Daryl DK, as we speak, has just been uh, just signed, reportedly signed a, uh, a one of these loan things that are happening right now. Daryl DK, the uh, forward for uh, Orlando, Orlando City, f- uh, to go to Barnsley over there in the championship. And this follows all sorts of different things, including Jordan Morris, who we've talked about, the potential for Paul Ariola over there and other things that are uh, that are happening right now. Chris Richards. So there's a lot of good stuff and good moves. Uh, some of this this loan stuff, I think, is really going to be interesting. And we talked a little bit about it with Stu earlier in the show. Is are, are these just semesters abroad, if you will, and uh, are they just being used as an opportunity to, in some cases, put players in the storefront window? Some cases just to scratch that itch that they may have. We talked a little bit about the CBA earlier with MLS. Who knows when MLS is actually going to start? Is this relative to the unknowing when it comes to MLS uh, players right now? But, you know, this and and this window oftentimes is very different than the summer window. Uh, But there has been movement. You look at Ozil, which I think is the biggest name, I guess, if you will, in terms of movement and his long relationship and often frayed relationship with Arsenal is fine, and it's finally come to an end. Um, it's a lo- much longer conversation, but you know, when you do look at the time that he had, was it ultimately a success? His time at Arsenal, a tom- conversation for another time. But those are some of the things uh, off the top of my head. Some related specifically to what's happening in the U.S. and Canada and those opportunities that are arising and these opportunities that these players are taking and then some uh, more generally about uh, about what's uh, what's happening. Mossy. Yeah, I mean, quickly on the American front, also became official this morning, Brian Reynolds' move to Roma. We felt good enough about that that we threw it on a graphic that we aired last night of yeah. uh, the latest batch of Americans ever going from MLS to Europe. We had Jordan Morris on there moving to Swansea, Brendan Aronson to Salzburg, Mark McKenzie to Genk. 
uh, Joe Scali to Gladbach and Brian Reynolds to Roma. And now you can add DK to Barnsley to that list. Also, as you mentioned, uh, Americans moving within Europe, Chris Richards on loan from Bayern to Hoffenheim, DeAndre Yedlin now at Galatasaray, so he'll face Ozil. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of news involving Americans for sure. On the non-American front, uh, you mentioned one of the big ones, the Ozil saga finally being over. We could do a whole podcast on that one, but uh, I'll just, for now, I'll wish him best of luck because on his day, he's a wonderful player to watch, and hopefully uh, he can get his career back on track with Fenerbahce. Um, Arsenal, uh, as a replacement for Ozil, they picked up Martin Odegaard on loan from Real Madrid. And I want to touch on Real Madrid for a second because they unloaded two young players, uh, Odegaard, who went to Arsenal, and Luka Jovic, who was a complete flop at Real Madrid. He now goes back to Frankfurt, which is where they got him from. And we covered Luka Jovic when he really emerged as a a star at Frankfurt. And these two moves sort of shed a light on this disconnect at Real Madrid. The the front office the last couple of years really wanted to embark on this youth movement, invested a lot of money on younger players. But, you know, it's when you're Real Madrid, it's not enough to just buy young players. If you're really going to go down this youth movement path, you have to alter the whole mentality of the club. And they weren't willing to do that. Real Madrid is Real Madrid. They're not Dortmund. They're not Ajax. They're not Benfica. And so it was a little odd that they tried to do this and, you know, invariably became an issue because, you know, you're, you're, you're Real Madrid, you're still living in this now mode and this pressure for trophies and Zinedine Zidane, uh, you know, knows that he, he needs to uh, produce immediate results. And so he ended up losing faith in all these young players and going with the tried and tested veterans. And so all these young players got squeezed out of the lineup and demanded moves elsewhere. And the guys that are still there now, are, are, like Vinicius, are not far behind. Vinicius this summer is going to get either loaned or sold because uh, he, he's, his career is deteriorating fast. But yeah, and, 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 and you know, it's interesting because Jovic goes back to Frankfurt and scores three goals in his first two games. And so it ignited this debate in Real Madrid. Is it that he's good and was a good signing and Zidane just didn't use him right? Or is it apples and oranges that scoring goals and playing well for Eintracht Frankfurt is completely different than doing so for Real Madrid? I mean, where, where do you come down on that? I, look, I think environment and circumstances matter. I mean, the, the essence of the job of scouting, uh, sporting directors, technical directors, whatever you, you want to be, is to be able to look at a player and to extrapolate it out and to envision that player in a very different setting. And just because a player is doing something in one setting doesn't mean that they have the ability to translate it to, uh, to, to another. But that's the job. And the best people that are in those positions are able to oftentimes see something that I wouldn't see or you wouldn't see uh, and be able to say, that is going to work for us. And even within a game, they can look at a player and say, he is doing or she is doing this right now. But in this type of situation, I feel that that player can do that better or they can use what they're doing there to do a different job for us. I mean, it's it. It is hard and it's dangerous uh, because you you oftentimes are prisoners of the moment and you see a player do something and you automatically think that that player uh, can translate it. Even even goal scores, the way that goals are scored and the way that goals scored, it's not just about the number of goals. It's how you're scoring the goals, where you are scoring goals. It does you no good, for example, if you play with a more traditional type of goal scorer up top who's able to hold the ball and, and get in the uh, six as opposed to a false nine type of thing. They may have the exact same number of goals, but it may be very, very different ways than they go about doing it. 
Uh, a few other miscellaneous moves. One that I love is Sevilla picking up Papu Gomez, who uh, leaves Atalanta. He had a rift with Gasparini, and so they decided that he had to go. But that's a really nice pickup for Sevilla, potentially. Uh, Atletico Madrid, uh, Diego Costa asked to leave, so they rescinded his contract. They needed a backup striker, a backup for Suarez. And so they pick up Moussin Dembele from Lyon, who is having a bad season, but on his day can be a very good player. So that, that one be interesting to watch. Uh, Leipzig picking up Zobelai, a very talented young player from Jesse Marsh's Salzburg. Uh, and then Mandzukic going to AC Milan is interesting to be, I guess, the backup and sometimes partner to Vlatan. Uh, I know he's 34, uh, but that could be a sneaky good pickup. Uh, I like uh, AC Milan adding Mario Mandzukic to the mix there. So uh, those were some of the moves throughout Europe that caught my attention. Wasn't a busy window, uh, pretty tame stuff, but nevertheless, there were some interesting moves out there that were worth discussing. I mean, Mandzukic is a spring chicken, relatively, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> you're, you're getting a young player. All right, what else, Masi? Uh, by the way, good question from Luis Aguilar. His first positive contribution to this podcast <laughs> in three years. Uh, next up, uh, Nathaniel. Uh, he says, I have a question, Mr. Lalas. Very, very formal, Nathaniel. Ooh, wow. Why is it that MLS teams are limited to the number of international players they can have on their roster? Okay, so when Major League Soccer uh, came about in 1996, part of the original desire and mandate was to foster and to help and to progress the American player, the domestic player, and the U.S. men's uh, national team. It's actually in writing in some of their literature from the, uh, the very beginning. In order to do that, you have to make sure that you have things in place that are going to force teams to do it, that otherwise maybe wouldn't do it. Uh, and so that's why those, you know, those, those restrictions are in place. Uh, while I look at that and I say that's nice and 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 there's a noble aspect of doing that, and I can recognize that it is and was looked at as a league of our own, uh, and therefore you want opportunities and you want to do things that maintain and provide those opportunities for players that are growing up in the country, or in this case, the countries in which they play. Um, I don't think it's necessary. I think that if you are an MLS team, and you feel that for your business, for your market, for your customers, that your product is better suited to having 11 players on the field, all international, all coming in, that you should be allowed to do that. I do feel that the U.S. player um, will, will find a way. The U.S. player often, often does. But that's the reason why they have those uh, restrictions in place. Now, it's changed, it's changed over time. And um, there are some teams that, you know, that, that, that use domestic talent as something that, as a feather in their cap and something that they champion, and other teams that don't necessarily. But, and, and by the way, this isn't just in MLS. This happens in leagues and to different extents uh, all, over, all over the world. But, you know, I, as I said before, I don't believe that Major League Soccer's responsibility should be to the American player or to the United States men's national team. It's a, as I said, it is a business and I, I want it to be successful and I want it to do everything it possibly can. And if in order to be successful, um, it, 
it means having less restrictions and therefore potentially less opportunities for the American or the domestic player, I'm okay with that because I do believe that American players will find a way. Now, the interesting thing is that as the league has grown and Major League Soccer has tried to be a quote-unquote destination uh, and a league of choice for Everybody, including domestic players, we are seeing more and more domestic players going overseas. Now, is it because that's just their dream and that's what they want to do? Or are they also being influenced by the fact that they see less and less opportunity or less and less pathway to playing in the league? I don't know the answer ultimately to that. And I don't know if it is going to change in the future. I would be really interested to see what the teams would look like if those restrictions were completely taken away. I still think, as I said, the American player would find a way and there would be opportunities for the American player. Um, And I just don't know ultimately what teams would go about their business differently. But that, you know, that's a long way of explaining why those are in place. And and as I said, they're, uh, they're for a reason. They're traditional. They are noble and they are living up and adhering to that original stated goal and mandate of helping foster American talent, domestic talent, and obviously the national team. Uh, And we'll end on this. Uh, This is a question taken from one of your Periscope sessions. Uh, At A. Robinson, 1987, uh, who would you rather have taking a penalty for your club, Neymar or Ronaldo? Neymar or Ronaldo? That's an interesting question. I'm going to assume this is Cristiano Ronaldo. Yes, I would think so, yes. Um, if I've tried to look it up, and I'm sure uh, people out there have the up-to-date statistics, but they're both in the 80s, mid-80s uh, type of range, I think, the last article that I looked at when it comes to their conversion rate. So we're, we're still talking about, from a, a making standpoint, um, two players that usually make it. And look, all players usually make it. It's an 80% chance, usually, of, uh, of making these things. All right. Oh, this is interesting, because... Who I want taking penalties are those that are the least emotional, I guess, about it. And the problem is, is that we're dealing with two very emotional types of players in different ways. I mean, we've seen both of them crumble to pieces. We've seen both of them cry. We've seen both of them express their emotions, as I said, in different ways. So I'm trying to figure out who the least, who would exhibit the least amount of emotion or be phased the least by emotion. I'm going to have to go with Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm going to go with Cristiano. What about you, Masi? Well, listen, uh, although I'm a Brazilian, uh, I'm not delusional. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo is the more clutch player of the two. So if you take the comp- take the question down that path, mm-hmm. and invariably you're going to say Cristiano Ronaldo. But uh, here's what overrides it for me. It's just a matter of technique. Neymar... Um, it, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride in his career because he had a, a stretch at Barcelona where he was really bad on penalties and, and missed several in a row. And it got in his head and he started playing around with and doing this like no run up thing where he just stood right over the ball and took it, which was weird. But somehow, right when he arrived at PSG, and, and if you recall, uh, it, it was it was a big controversy when he arrived at PSG. Cavani was the penalty kick taker, and Neymar wanted to take the penalties, and they got into a big fight about it. And the PSG front office had to step in and mediate. And Neymar ended up wrestling penalty kick taking uh, responsibilities away from Cavani. But he he has sort of justified it because since then he's found this technique where he does this stutter step run up, and then right when he's about to kick it. 
he hesitates for a second and he always gets the goalkeeper leaning one way or the other and he's just able to calmly slot it the other way and his record the last three four years has been phenomenal i, I he's i think as i in in all competitions for PSG the last in the four seasons he's missed one penalty it's like 19 out of 20 or something like that and he hasn't missed any for brazil so over that time so and he converted to this weekend against lorient in a defeat by the way PSG lost 3-2 um but so just on a pure technique standpoint i just think he's now the superior penalty kick taker of those two so so i would take i, I agree he he strikes the ball more musically i guess he, and, and there's there's it's smoother it's easier on the eyes and it's less disjointed cristiano is much more robotic uh, and metallic if you will in the way that in the way that he goes about it. i will give you that but i do think that because i'm envisioning to win a world cup right uh which both of these players uh would do anything to be able to be in that position and but your hopes and your dreams of your nation and the world and the eyes are upon you and all of that emotion and all of that passion, uh, who is better able to push that down? Tampa, I, I, I'm still going to go with Cristiano. Let us know. Let us know what you think out there, who you would go. If you go one penalty, who would you go with, Cristiano Ronaldo or Neymar? By the way, can we end on a somewhat uh, humorous note? Well, I'll be the judge of that, but go ahead. Well, anybody that listens to this podcast knows I have this lisp that comes out whenever I say the word Barcelona and <laughs> no you don't say you've probably heard it many times throughout this this podcast and it actually became an issue yesterday at work because uh, we decided to build a little graphic of uh, all the Americans that are playing at in clubs that are in the Champions involved in the Champions League knockout stage and two of them obviously are Conrad De La Fuente and Sergio Deso in Barcelona and I was rattling off the information to our uh, graphics person who was typing them. And, and when I said Barcelona, I said it with a lisp and it really threw her off. She said, wait a minute, am I crazy? How do you spell that? Isn't it with a C? I said, yeah, Barcelona. She's like, okay, but you're saying it in a way where I, I, it's like, <laughs> it created like a real moment of confusion there about how you spell the word Barcelona. I just love that it comes in and out. It's just, it just it's totally random as to when you decide to use it and when you don't. Keep doing what you're doing, Mossy. I love you for it. I love I love you for your list, but it uh, when it comes to Barcelona and and you're you're trying to be authentic. You're trying to be genuine. Uh, maybe you're being a little elitist, but it's okay. It's it's okay. I uh, I dig it. Keep doing what you're doing, buddy. All right, anything else from an Ask Alexi perspective, Mossy? Uh, no, that's it. All right, we're gonna take one more quick break, and when we come back, I will have my one for the road. Don't go away. All right, we're back and we're uh, finishing up this pod with uh, one for the road. I do this each and every week. And uh, we talked earlier in the pod with Stuart Holden. Last night, the uh, the game that the United States men's national team played against uh, Trinidad Tobago featured six players who got their first cap. And I, it, it got me thinking. One of the things that I, I love about the international game is uh, this concept of when you step on the field, uh, immediately from that moment on, you are forever known as an international. Put your country in front, whatever country it is you want. And in doing so, you become part of a very select uh, and a very exclusive group. 
in my case, it's representing what I feel is the greatest country in the world. And I had the privilege of doing it numerous times. But the reality is that it doesn't matter whether it's one cap or a hundred caps. Uh, when you step on that field, you become part of that club. From a U.S. men's national team perspective, uh, the, we mentioned six new ones last night. There are 810 men in recorded human history that have had the privilege and the honor of putting on the shirt of the United States and representing the United States at the, on the men's national team. And it doesn't matter uh, how old they are. It doesn't matter how many games you won. As I said, it doesn't matter how many caps you won. It doesn't matter the profile, how much money you made, your fame, anything like that. You are part of that club and you will forever be a part of that exclusive and uh, privileged type of club. And it, it made me so proud uh, and happy because, you know, I talk about the game and I'm going to talk about good and bad things and I'm going to critique. At times I'm going to criticize. At times I'm going to praise. But when all is said and done, the scores come and go and the goals come and go. But you, you are left with this opportunity. And for some of these players, even the six that played last night, they may never get another chance to do this. You know, the careers twist and wind and there's things you can anticipate and things that you can't. But you will never, ever take that away that you are a U.S. international because uh, you, stepped, you stepped on the field. And that's, that's something special. That's something to be celebrated. That's something to take, to take pride in. And I certainly do. I never took it for granted. And I always made sure that regardless of the interactions that I had with, uh, with, with different teammates, whether, as I said, it was their first cap or whether it was their 100 cap, they are part of that club and they are an equal part of that club. And I just, I love and want to celebrate the concept of once you're in, you're in. And it can never be taken away from you. And I, I, I love that. So congratulations to those six. Uh, you are part of that now 810 men in this case, uh, group and club. And I welcome you. I congratulate you. There's no handshake or anything like that, but it can never be taken away from you. Uh, Mossy, anything uh, before we go, my friend? That's it. All right. Again, I want to thank uh, Stu Holden for dropping by and uh, talking to us about the U.S. men's national team and the MLS CBA and uh, all the other stuff uh, that he does. He is a, uh, a real asset that we have over here uh, when it comes to uh, Fox, uh, Fox soccer. Mossy, you are also uh, an incredible asset. Uh, so thank you for everything that, that you do. And thank you for everybody for listening and downloading and subscribing and rating and doing all the things that everybody does out there. We will be back again next week. Same time, same place here on the State of the Union. And until that time, size the day. <laughs> <laughs>